At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We're still thinking about the midterms. The Democrats, you will recall, needed 23 seats to retake the House. They won at least 39, probably 40. They got more than 53% of the vote. That's the largest popular vote margin in history for either party, bigger than the Watergate midterm after Nixon resigned in 1974. That was 44 years ago. But there was a deeper and more significant victory hidden behind those numbers. For comment, we turn to Kai Wright. He's host of WNYC's terrific podcast, The United States of Anxiety. It's now in its third season. He's also head of WNYC's narrative unit, and he's a columnist for The Nation. Kai Wright, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what for you was the real midterm victory. Let's let's start with Georgia, where, of course, Stacey Abrams ran for governor. Well, I mean, there are many, many midterm victories, actually, but I think the one I'm really interested in is what is happening in the South for the Democratic Party. Huge swaths of the South are sort of area number one on the list of the places that Democrats as a national party uh, long ago wrote off as, okay, well, that's red territory. We won't invest in actually fostering a debate in those places. We won't invest literally in terms of money and resources. And we won't invest in terms of trying to actually develop candidates and develop uh, the party, the infrastructure there. It's it's a stance that produces the the outcome you would expect, right? Like it remains... Uh, deeply red territory, despite the fact that there are not only there's demographic change happening in terms of the number of young people and people of color and migrants from around the country that are moving to those places, but also even before the change, this is the blackest part of the country. And so what we saw in this election cycle was, I hope, and I, and I think I, I, I can say without hyperbole, I think it's the beginning of the end of that. Saw. Um, some races all in different ways, um, from Stacey Abrams in Georgia to Beto O'Rourke in Texas to Andrew Gillum uh, in Florida, all in their own ways, start to say, nope, there's a party here. There is a progressive movement here, uh, and it deserves representation. But Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, and Beto O'Rourke did not win. <laughs> that is correct. But I think there's, there's important things to think about in those losses. First off, Certainly in Texas and in Georgia, it should have never been a conversation in the first place. So to, to be very clear, these are races that a year ago were, in no, were not in debate about whether or not they would be Republican seats. And these are places that were nonetheless hard fought. And in Georgia, it has ended only because Stacey Abrams decided not to continue her legal battle. And these are places that took enormous amounts of voter suppression in order for them to even hold their seats. So these became enormously competitive places that were not. But it's not just about the outcome of the election. Part of Stacey Abrams' success was that she ran a statewide campaign. Democrats in Georgia since at least the early 90s have been running very localized campaigns. They've been saying, well, we want to win Atlanta, we want to run up the vote. 
in places where they have a lot of black people and we want to try to to, to draw out uh, moderate whites in those exurbs around those cities. And so that informed the kind of candidates that they chose um, and it formed the kind of strategy that they chose. That isn't just about whether or not she flipped a given county from red to blue. It's that she made those, she got votes out in those counties. Democrats who had not been engaged now are. And I visited a number of these counties where you have people that are in red places and who were not part of the political conversation, never felt like they were invited into political conversation, and who are now activated and who are now building a party in their county. And that's going to have an impact not just on who's governor, it's going to have an impact on the county commissions, it's going to have an impact on House seats. It's going to have impact on the state legislature. The Democrats won something like 12 uh, new seats, 12 seats, picked up something like 12 seats in the Georgia state legislature. So it's not just the governor. It's all the way down the ticket. You start to build a party. And when you do that, you start to change a state. There was a, a big uh, article in the New York Times on Sunday, page one article. The headline was Across the South. Democrats who speak boldly risk alienating rural white voters. They pointed out that people were talking about Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gilliam, and Beto O'Rourke, quote, may have electrified black and progressive white voters, but they had an equal and opposite effect as well. In rural counties, this trio of next-generation Democrats performed worse than Obama did in 2012, close quote. What do you think about that? It was it was destined that we would arrive in this debate. This is the debate we went into the campaign with, yes, right? You know, is. I mean, there is a part of the party that says, no, no, no. The strategy here has to be that you need to run candidates that appeal to conservative white voters. They would call them moderate white voters. I would call them conservative white voters. You have to run candidates that appeal to those people, and that's the way you're going to win. And baked into that idea is that you take for granted, you presume that the black people and the actual progressives and the and all of the democratic constituencies will just come along with you. So you take those people for granted. So that's first off baked into that is that you've chosen that these people who are your party are the people who you will just assume will come. And so then you will go and pursue, you will build your strategy around, you have to reach these conservative whites. That has proven to be an utter failure. Stacey Abrams got a higher share of the Democratic vote than any than any Democrat since 1998. Four million people voted in a midterm election. Listen, if you pick a fight, yeah, your opponent's going to fight back. It, it, that's a truism, right? If you don't pick a fight, you'll lose. Take Florida, for example. Now that one of the most undertold stories of this election is that somewhere between a million and a million point five people have been re-enfranchised in Florida as a consequence of, of, of the initiative that gave felons their right to vote back. We haven't decided an election in Florida by less than by more than 100,000 votes in a long time. If 10 percent of those people go to the polls, Florida is a different place and, and they are overwhelmingly African-American. And in fact, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gilliam and Betham did have a strategy for appealing to, quote, those people. Uh, talk about health care, talk about Medicare for all, talk about raising the minimum wage, the famous bread and butter kitchen table issues, which actually would help poor rural white people in the South. It's true. And, you know, but I, I, and I don't want to I'm not being a Pollyanna here, you know, like the, the reality is. Uh, that white supremacy is a thing, that the Republican Party has mobilized on it very well, 
that uh, there are huge hunks of the white electorate right now that no matter what piece of policy you're talking to them about, if you are a candidate of color, if you are a Democratic candidate, if you are associated with a part with the Democratic Party that is saying, hey, we believe in pluralism, that you're going to vote against that party. I, that, that's true. There's a, there, we know that, right? If, if, if there was ever any confusion about that, Donald Trump has laid that bare. But that is not, it does not logically follow then that you concede to that movement and say, oh, well, okay, well, that's where we're at. They get the power. We have to figure out how to like put ourselves, figure out how to package ourselves for them. No, you have to say, well, we don't believe in that vision of America. And so we need to figure out how we can build a party that doesn't, that, that challenges that vision of America. And if that's your starting point versus this sort of consultant driven, how do we win in 2020 thing? then it's a no-brainer that you would run a can- that you would be excited about a campaign like Stacey On your podcast, The United States of Anxiety, you had a fantastic recent episode before the election. Uh, you found a secret group of women activists in Texas. Tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an example of what happens when you start to activate everywhere in the country and in every county of every state. Uh, this is a group of women. Some of them were Democrats. Some of them were moderate Republicans. Uh, some of them were apolitical. Um, we didn't. I never actually met them. Uh, uh, they were. They had to conceal their identity. We were introduced to them through uh, someone who was doing research on, on politics in Texas. They lived in a rural county. They were so appalled with the state of the Republican Party that they, they could no longer just go along with it. And they, so they believed in Beto O'Rourke's campaign, but they were terrified of admitting that publicly. Um, they were worried about being ostracized from their, from their faith communities. They were worried about the state of their businesses. Uh, if they were public about that, they were worried about what it would do to some of their personal relationships, including with their spouses, with their husbands. And so they began to literally organize in secret. They would gather in an undisclosed location uh, and they would volunteer. Some of them, the ones we spoke to were the ones, were the handful of them that were comfortable being more open. You know, they still had their names changed for, for the, for the show, uh, but they were willing to talk to us about the work. And, and they expressed this mixture of bravery and fear there's, you know, and I have to say, it's not the only example of that that I came across in the course of this campaign, particularly amongst women. I met a woman in Georgia, in South Georgia, who was volunteering for the Abrams campaign, uh, and she uh, she said that she, her, she, her husband, uh, and her father-in-law were the only three white people she knew who were Democrats in her county, in her rural county in South oh. Georgia, and so, and and that she felt unsafe. That she had that one of her names. So her her father and her her father-in-law and her husband were in the closet about it, but she was willing to be open about it. And her neighbors had tried to run her off the road, is what she said. Um, and so she felt, and so they don't, and they vote early because they don't want to be seen on election day at their at their local polling place voting for a Democrat. If they vote early, they get to vote oh, a little further away from home. Uh, and so. But she felt like she could not, she just couldn't, the, the country had reached a place where she had to had to stand up. And so she was volunteering for the Abrams campaign. She would work outside of her county with the campaign. She wouldn't do it in her own county. Um, and so, and, and I, I encountered that in, in New Jersey even. There were people, uh, we, we covered uh, a group in New Jersey that unseated their uh, Republican uh, congressperson, but the person who headed that, that, that movement 
lost her job in the course of her activism, was, could no longer, could, and she had a very successful career, but because her, the bank she worked for was a finder of the Republican congressman she was organizing against, and she lost her job. Two things here is that the stakes for people have gotten really, really high. For those of us who have been literally targeted by this administration and by the party that it represents, the stakes have gotten very high if you're a person of color, if you're an immigrant, if you're a woman. And so many people are prepared to do things that they never thought that they would do. And the question then for whether you're a movement that is trying to to, to whether we're social movements or whether it's the Democratic Party or another political party, are you going to actually engage with those people in their homes or are you going to write them off? Uh, and that is that is also the, what, is, what is enraging about uh, a, a, a political analysis that says, oh, you know, forget that county in Texas, forget that county in Georgia. There are people there who are prepared to risk their lives. And you won't you won't risk a few dollars of your political party in order to support them is is disgusting. Kai Wright, his new column for the nation is titled "What Was the Real Midterm Victory?" Read it at thenation.com. Kai, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Okay.